As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Write Anything podcast. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the show with me, Justin Briley, Premier's Theology and Apologetics Editor. The show, as ever, brought to you in partnership with Premier, SBCK, and NT Write Online. And what an exciting time we've had with NT Write over the last week or so. Very pleased to be bringing you this week and in the next two weeks some of the exciting special content we've recorded with Tom recently. And today on the show, you're going to hear the first part of the recent conversation I moderated between Tom and cultural critic Douglas Murray. So we'll be continuing that next week as well. And then another treat the week after, it'll be the special live edition of Ask N.T. Write Anything that we filmed at our unbelievable conference this past weekend. And what a conference it was. Thank you so much if you were able to be part of it. But if you weren't, you can get hold of all the sessions now as a digital download. And you can do that at the website, unbelievable.live. If you'd like to get all of the great sessions that N.T. Wright and Tom Holland and others uh, contributed to as part of that conference last weekend, unbelievable.live. So some special extended editions of the show in your podcast feed today and in the weeks to come before we return to the usual Q&A format of the show. Do feel free to be in touch, by the way, to ask questions yourself at askntwrite.com. It's the show page. You can register there for the newsletter as well, bonus content, and of course, to put a question to Tom yourself. So today's show is this conversation between N.T. Wright and Douglas Murray on identity, myth and miracles. Do we need a new story to live by in a post-Christian world, we were asking, and it was part of our big conversation series. Now, I'd love to know what you think of this conversation. We've actually got a survey that's linked with today's show. So go to the info, click on the survey. We'd love to hear what you make of today's show. It's a very simple, multi-choice survey. And do sign up at thebigconversation.show for more of these conversations on big questions between big thinkers. And today on the programme, we're talking about identity, myth and miracles and asking, can we find a story to live by in a post-Christian world? Uh, We do live in a post-Christian culture and and many secularists have welcomed the fading of the West Christian identity. But the question is, what is it being replaced by and how should we address what many believe is a growing meaning and identity crisis in the West? Um, We're going to be asking, can Christianity still make sense of the modern world? And to help us do that, uh, N.T. Wright is a senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall at the University of Oxford. He's the former Bishop of Durham and the author of numerous books, including his latest, Broken Signposts, How Christianity Makes Sense of the World. Our other guest is Douglas Murray. He's associate editor of The Spectator magazine and author of books including The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity. And uh, during the course of the conversation, we're going to be making time for your questions as well. So we'll have some of those towards the end of today's show. If you've got a question, whether you're watching via our YouTube channel or on one of the many Facebook pages who are sharing tonight's video, then do feel free to put a question in the chat, in the comments. And we've got a team who are going to be looking out for those and sending them through. And we hope to be able to ask as many of those as we can towards the end of the program today. Um, Well, thank you so much, Douglas and Tom, for joining me on the show today. Um, I think this is the first time we've had you both together for a conversation, though I'm sure you're both aware of each other a little. Um, Douglas, um, have you bumped into Tom's work before, before coming on the show tonight? 
I certainly have, and um, uh, read uh, parts of it over the years, and uh, actually have recently been reading at the recommendation of uh, many people uh, his excellent biography of Paul, which I've been immersed in. And, uh, so yes, very much so. And, um, Fantastic. Um, I, and and Tom, you 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 actually have both sort of had a little bit of a a to and fro in the pages of the Spectator, actually, in as much as I, I know that you recently responded to a an article by Douglas, didn't you? Yes, yes. Um, I, I've read Douglas in the Spectator frequently, and I've now read his book, The Madness of Crowds, as well, with great enjoyment and a rather scary interest because it's quite a dystopian vision. But um, uh, the article in the Spectator did to me what articles sometimes do, which made me pace around the house for half the day thinking, I really have to write something about this. And thinking, no, don't be silly, you haven't got time, don't do it. And eventually the worm in my head turned into um, rather rather quick prose. I was thinking of an article, but it turned into a letter, but I hope it was stimulating anyway. Well, um, I certainly did find it stimulating and, and we'll maybe come to that issue in, in a moment's time. Sure. But uh, before we get to that, Douglas, um, how are you? How have you been coping with, with the past COVID year? How, how have things been? Uh, like everyone, you know, it's, it's um, a, a bleak time in lots of ways and, and has things that are salvageable in it. Uh, I've had far more time to read than I normally do. Um, I very much enjoyed that. I've had the opportunity to um, do a lot of thinking, a lot of writing. Uh, I, I said at the beginning of the pandemic that in a way, those of us who are writers are rather well set up for it. Mm. To be a writer is to be able to deal with solitude and that indeed you, you must have solitude uh, so um, we're rather practiced at it but nevertheless I'm nothing can prepare you for something as as strange as the era we've been through and I suppose you know uh, not maybe not leap straight in but I, I, I do think that uh, certainly my readings back over history and plagues in history seem to bear out one of the things I feel at the moment which is that they have a disorientating effect on the civilizations across which they they roam. Uh, um, all sorts of strange things come out of the woodwork, um, strange beliefs, strange fears, things you didn't know were there. And I think that's very much the case in our society and across the world in the last year, as much as it has been in history. Yeah. Yes, and uh, as, as Justin, Justin knows, I wrote a little book last year called God and the Pandemic. Um, the publishers put a, um, a subtitle, something like The Coronavirus and Its Aftermath, hoping that the pandemic would be over in a month or two, but that the book would still sell. And now it's a bit, well, we're still waiting for the aftermath mm -hmm. a year later. Yeah. But that was really in response precisely to what Douglas has just said, that particularly in America, but also in other parts of the world, um, the, the sudden arrival of this pandemic and all that it's meant has has produced all sorts of apocalyptic speculations mm. and is this a sign of the end of the world and um, or does this mean that God is punishing us for some specific wrongdoing or whatever? And uh, it, it came as a shock to many people that there have been pandemics and plagues and so on mm. over history reasonably frequently. And it's just that in the last century, we in the West have been protected from major disease like this. So we were kind of unprepared. I see it as like a sort of wartime conditions in that everything is different and we just have to get through it. And when we look back, there will be all sorts of things where we say, oh, what a pity that had to happen or this this came about or whatever. So mm. I think there's a lot of navigation and negotiation still to be done. I, it does present an interesting context within which to be having today's conversation. We're asking, can we find a story to live by in a post-Christian world? And and I, I wonder if we could start with your your own story, Douglas. Um, for those who perhaps haven't come across you before or don't know this particular aspect of your life, you, you did cl make claim to a faith yourself at one time. So, so tell us mm. a little bit about that and what, what happened along the way. Um, well, I, I, yeah, I'm not I'm, like most people from Britain. I'm not that comfortable about speaking about myself. <laughs> I know we live in an era where everyone volunteers up their personal story first. Uh, I, I tend to always want to do it last, if at all. Uh, yes, I mean it's, it's not a it's not a secret that having been said, I was born and brought up a Christian, as a believing Christian from I think most of my life, including through my adult life, uh, and I'm now in the. Um, I suppose a, a self-confessedly um, conflicted, complex situation of being, among other things, um, 
an uncomfortable uh, um, agnostic um, who recognizes the values and the virtues that the Christian faith has brought. Um, I think I, I sort of laid out how I think our civilization, our culture has got to the stage that it is at the moment and its current uncomfortable relationship with faith. I tried to lay that out in The Strange Death of Europe. I, 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 I still um, believe what I wrote there was, was accurate as a diagnosis of the era. Um, but it, it's, uh, and it's a very uncomfortable, as I say, position that some like me is in because I say, you know, you, there has been a period of rejection of, of, of faith, particularly from uh, what in our lifetimes has been known as the new atheist movement. Uh, uh, which uh, made claims that were self-confessedly uh, um, wrong. That, for instance, um, actually I think as a late friend of both Tom Wrights and mine, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs once said, uh, you know, that the claim that, for instance, morality was obvious was, was obviously wrong. Um, the claim that, that basic ethics that, that we might share um, are self-evident is self-evidently not the case. Um, one doesn't have to be an ethicist to know that, you just need to travel, um, you just need to read, uh, look and listen, and I know that's the case. So um, there has, in my view, I think we spoke about this before, Justin, that there has, in my view, been a, a, an interesting movement in recent years, which uh, I think Tom Holland, who you mentioned earlier, is certainly an example of people saying, actually, if we go back and look at this, uh, uh, what we have and what we like does, does have roots in this, mm. uh, in the Christian story. Um, now, the, the follow-on question from there, I suppose, is, um, well, what do we do about it? And I think that a great, uh, a great failing of our time has been the tendency to talk past each other on this. The religious tend to say, well, it's easy. You just have to believe if you, if you uh, recognize these virtues and values, then, uh, then believe. And it uh, doesn't take into account the fact that very many people today, it is, it is harder than that. Uh, for all sorts of reasons we could go into. But I would just make one other observation, which is that um, even uh, outside of faith, uh, I, I, I have an added discomfort, which is the discomfort of a, of a non-believer who is disappointed by the behavior of the believing church. Um, now, many people think that that's paradoxical, but it isn't at all. I, I, um, uh, I, I not only was brought up in, but, but afterwards sought uh, the church um, as it was, as it has been in England, and its jewels and gems of the King James Bible, the Book of Common Prayer, and much more. And it's been my experience, as it has been for many other people brought up in recent decades and last century and more, that, that, that one has observed the church giving up its jewels and, and becoming something else. And actually, that, that uh, irritation, I feel, from the outside, albeit from the outside at the moment, that irritation I feel uh, about the church hasn't gone away even whilst being outside it. A fear, it comes back to that article that, that provoked uh, um, um, Tom Wright's excellent letter. Uh, uh, my fear is, is constantly the church is not doing what so many of us on the outside would like it to do, which is to be preaching its gospel, to be asserting its, its truths and its claims. And so when, when one sees it, falling into all of the latest tropes uh one just thinks well that's another thing gone it's just like absolutely everything else in the in the era everything in this boring monotone uh um ill thought out and shallow um dialectic and i am um, so as i say i'm 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 a disappointed non-adherent right. <laughs> Um, I don't know if Tom, you can help in any way here, but but what I mean, perhaps you could firstly some thoughts on what Douglas has shared there about his own his own journey, but also obviously his disappointment in a way as what he sees the church has become yes, today. I, I I very much understand that. I, I remember the late great Bishop Stephen Neal, who I knew um, maybe thirty years ago. He died in a great age around then. Um, saying that every time he went to a modern Anglican service, he came away with this deep sense of loss because he had grown up, like Douglas, with King James Version and the Book of Common Prayer and just felt that the contemporary liturgies just didn't cut it. And I get that too. I grew up similarly with very traditional words, etc. I, I suppose for me, 
that still remains. Um, I have been able in many contexts to go on using traditional liturgies as well as modern ones. But for me, the essence of it isn't so much the words and the culture and so on. And obviously that's a very English, British, um, actually English thing, the Book of Common Prayer and, and the King James Bible. Um, and I've been privileged to know Christians from many, many different backgrounds, many different parts of the world. And particularly when I was Bishop of Durham, um, I was able to see we had, what, 250 parishes in the diocese, very wide range from traditional to modern to this to that. But I was able to see the church at work, the church being the church on the street, the church being the one uh, group to whom the local council could turn to find out what on earth was going on on that terrible sink estate or whatever it was. And to see the church actually caring for people, being the family for the family list, etc. Not all churches do that, but that, that gave me this wonderful sense that all the theory that I as a theologian knew ought to be happening was happening on the street in some of the places that never hit the news and never hit the newspapers and uh, uh, never get quoted on the radio or whatever. But there are many, many, many ordinary Christians, mm. not that there are ordinary Christians, but you know what I mean, who are simply doing Christianity at ground level. And that's mm. the thing that is so exciting. And I think when you see that, you look across at the new atheists, and it's rather like people who, like Douglas and me, love classical music, um, overhearing a conversation between people who are tone deaf. You just think, well, it's a great shame for you that you don't get it, because actually this world of music is so rich and amazing. And that's how I feel about the new atheists. It's, it's too bad. And yes, there are arguments, but actually the arguments aren't necessarily the crucial thing. What matters is something something else, which many, many people still have. And we talk about post-Christian Britain or Europe, but actually there are many new Christian movements, uh, confusing often, um, and often getting muddled and so on, as we all do. But there's a great deal to be encouraged by, as well as, and, and as Douglas knows, I, I share his frustration when it appears that the church is simply jumping on the latest trendy mm. bandwagon. I mean, one quick example, and then I'll shut up. Um, about 10 years ago, when the debate on women bishops was really getting going, um, David Cameron in the House of Commons uh, said rather disdainfully about the Church of England, uh, yes, it's time they got on with it. They should get with the program. And I wrote a cross article <laughs> for the Times um, to say, no, we are, I hope, going to have women bishops, not because it's the program that our society is moving in some sort of um, spurious, uh, progressive idea, but because right from the beginning, the first person who Jesus told to go and tell other people that he'd been raised from the dead was a woman, that the foundation of the apostolic ministry comes with Mary Magdalene on the day, on Easter day. And from there, it's all downhill. Um, and mm. so I, I totally agree the church shouldn't just mm. be jumping on the agendas. It should be exploring more what is in its own textbook. Just just before we get to that, that spectator article that Tom responded to, um, Douglas, just staying with the new atheism for a moment, because in in a sense, arguably, that has been part of the story of how we have, you know, ended up in a in, a, in an increasingly post Christian West. But but I know that you were friends with one of the great new atheists, Christopher Hitchens. Um, uh, so so did did you disagree with him when when you were you know having lunch as friends and that sort of thing? What what was your relationship with the new atheists? Did you did you outgrow them? I I don't know. I think I'm friends with all of them. Um, uh, some still. Uh, I remember I, clearly. I, I knew Chris around the time that uh, I started to lose my own faith, and uh, I had been asked. Actually, it was a spectator. We always have a Christmas uh, sort of um, poll of, of, of writers, politicians, and others, and ask them a question. And that year, it must have been about 2008. That year, the question was, um, "Do you believe in the Virgin Birth?" And I think it was the last time I said, certainly in print, uh, maybe the first is where I said, yes, of course. And I remember I saw Christopher in Washington a little while later. We've known each other for some years, reviewed a number of my books. And I remember he raised this over a drink in his apartment. He said, I saw your answer in The Spectator. And <laughs> thinking, oh, gosh. And he said, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I didn't know you. And he sort of said something like, I didn't know you were that way. You know, it was, he was very <laughs> shocked, very, very shocked. And uh, we agreed not to discuss it at the following lunch. Um, uh, 
yes, I mean, I, I've I've spent my life surrounded by um, people who have strong opinions, and uh, um, that includes very religious people um, of many faiths and um, and many secularists and atheists. I, I I think there has been, as I just alluded to earlier, there's been, I think, a fruitful dialogue in recent years actually on this. Um, I would just throw one uh, thing in, if I may, which is that um, one of the things Tom just said alludes to something I find very interesting, which is a retreat that can happen in faith from um, uh, faith with assertions, um, ethical claims, and much more into effectively a social action group. Now, I know that's not what you were referring to, but I'm very interested in the way that this has happened. I've seen it in America. I've seen it in Jewish communities a lot as well. There's actually a term. I, I, would, I would muck it up if I tried to do it in Hebrew now. But there's a, there's a, there's a term for, effectively, the doing of good works. Uh, and you can see some, um, effectively, basically, um, non-believing, uh, no longer believing um, sort of Jewish communities falling into this, saying, well, actually, our Judaism will be doing good works, doing charity and um, soup kitchens and, 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 and much more. And I find that very interesting. I find it noble and much more, but I don't think of it as religion. Uh, I, but, I don't but, see it as, as that. <laughs> that, that. But that is the problem with our word religion and religious, isn't it? That um, the modern, as in post-18th century, view of religion is precisely something that is divorced from the rest of ordinary life. And that's been reinforced by, I think, an overall misinterpretation of the idea of justification by faith apart from works, as though, okay, if we believe in faith and that sort of religion, you shouldn't be bothered about all that other stuff at all. Whereas in the New Testament, it's very clear. Paul says on two or three occasions, if you're in this game, be zealous for good works. And he doesn't mean moral good works to earn your salvation mm. or anything like that. It's that from the very start, the church was designed to be an outward facing what's going on in this community and how can we help kind of movement. And mm. they found that that was shocking to many people because there weren't too many other people in the ancient world who lived like that, who were looking out for the poor, not only their own poor, but other people's as well. Uh, Paul mm. says, while we have time, do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. But there's a sense that following from Jesus himself, there is that agenda that that, that we are about God's plan to put the world right. And we're not, we can't do it all ourselves because it's a much bigger thing than that. But we can be people who are bringing about signs of God's restorative justice in the world. And of course, from the outside, that can look like just people running soup kitchens. Well, I'd rather people ran soup kitchens than didn't run soup kitchens. And oh. sure, Douglas would agree. But, um, uh, it, it's it's actually about a vision of the whole of life, and if we think if that's why I worry about this word religion and religious, because it mm. didn't mean in the first century what it means now either. So uh, I would rather talk about God the Creator and God the Reconciler and Redeemer of creation, focused of course on Jesus, but with then the followers of Jesus commissioned to do those things which say to the world there is a different way to be human. And following mm. Jesus is the key to it. You're slightly unusual or becoming slightly unusual in this regard, in that you're a, a theologian, a, a bishop, and a, um, um, a, and a very prominent faith, uh, face in, in the faith, um, who does say these things. And um, this seems to me to be um, uncommon uh, at the moment. And I, 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 this, the, the, what one hears from prominent bishops, archbishops even, is an attempt to slip into the, the rhetoric of the era and indeed slip into the ethics and the ethical claims of the era without making those foundational assertions that, as I say, I think that many people are and hungry for. And, and um, is yes. this where the, the issue of 
the the article let, let's go to that and and put you yeah. know name that elephant in the room but you douglas published an article which was highly critical of the church of england's um current approach to anti-racism and so on uh tom and, and feeling that they were essentially bowing to a sort of certain woke ideology essentially and and not sort of doing what they should do as the church so what was your response to that and and how much truth is there in what in in douglas's concerns about the direction of the right church? Uh, having having since read douglas's book the madness of crowds i see more clearly than i did at the time where the energy for douglas's article was coming from because clearly douglas has mapped out in as i said before a rather disturbing way um the large movements often rooted in various forms of early 20th century Marxism connected with Foucault and people like that, um, that have then generated some of these great movements. Um, And then to see the church getting on board with that, you think, hang on, what's going on? My initial response was, this is actually a problem that Jesus himself faced. He says at one point, that the kingdom of God is breaking in violently, but the men of violence are trying to get in on the act. In other words, there were other people saying it's time for the kingdom of God at the same time as Jesus was. Did that mean that Jesus should give up talking about the kingdom of God? No, it meant he had to go on explaining what he reckoned it did mean as opposed to what the other people were saying. And so there is bound to be a confusing convergence between uh, a genuine Jesus-following desire to see, for instance, social justice. It's written right across the New Testament that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female, And about the point from Acts 17, where Paul says on the Areopagus, hey, God made all people from the same stuff, from the same Mm. stock. We belong together. And uh, rather than, uh, and and of course, then we get into the trap, which Douglas has written about as well, um, of the modern idea that we're all identical, including there being no difference between male and female, etc., versus the postmodern idea, which collapses into dozens of different competing identities, mm. each trying to claim the high ground of the victim, etc., etc. Mm. And again, I think Douglas and I are on the same page on this one. But mm. then my point would be that the church, in being true to itself and not simply relying on contemporary, rather shallow ethical maxims, but being true to its original gospel, actually has the makings of doing what, at its best, some of the woke ideologies are seeking to do, which is a genuine passion for justice. Um, Forget the fact that the Marxists have come in on the act. Of course they have, because if the church misses out half of its agenda, it shouldn't be surprised if other people come rushing in from the side to fill it in. So um, that's that's where the issue, I think, has to lie. But um, I was grateful for what Douglas said, because it seems to me if an elderly theologian has anything to offer to the world, it may be the reminder of some of the deeper, richer stuff which is out there, which is in the Bible, for goodness sake, and which can refresh and renew a vision of what we all should be about. Go ahead, Douglas. Yes, I think this is very important. It gets to uh, um, another point I've written about Fairmount in recent years, which is, I I think, you know, Justin, I think maybe when we spoke before, we spoke about this, that um, sometimes people claim that the sort of public ethics of the time are uh, sort of non-existent. That's not quite true. They're they're trying to dig down uh, um, in quite a forceful way at the moment. Uh, What I was writing about in that article was just one example of that. But um, as I think I said to you when we spoke before, what I think of as being the most striking um, failure of the time is the failure to embed any um, ethic that does not rely on the the Christian ethic in regards to the um, equality of, of everyone in the eyes of God. Our age is struggling very badly with an attempt to replace that ethic or find another way to do it. And there are various ways uh, which it's tried to do that. Human rights um, ideology is one way, um, fairly developed, but I think uh, not successful. Uh, And another is effectively the landing on equity as as the answer when it can't be the answer but i see what i see what people are struggling to do which is to to try to maintain and hold on to this exceptionally important gift of the christian inheritance um 
without the idea of equality in the eyes of God and, and the value of every individual in the eyes of God, you, you are left with these attempts to assert that, for instance, everyone is the same um, yes. or can be. And, and it's, it's, yes. it's clear that we can't be and that we aren't. It's one of the great yes. things. If you, if, you take, if you take away the worry about the, the loss of the foundation, then it's, it's, it's fine. We can live yes. with it. I, I, I very much see Douglas's point. From, from where I sit, the only way really to get this sorted is, um, to, to, to use a trite phrase, to go back to Jesus. Because in the Jesus of the Gospels, as opposed to the Jesus of popular, much popular imagination, you find a rigorous re-inhabiting of the entire Jewish tradition and a redirection of this vision of what would it look like if God was in charge? That's the question of the kingdom of God. Just supposing God was in charge, how would it look? Well, it might look like a man who had two sons and one did this and one. It might look like, and then he heals somebody in the crowd, whatever it is. It's a renewal of human beings, not in order to be identical, uh, oh, we're all equal now, but in order to be certainly equally valued and equally though uniquely in themselves, part of an ongoing program that God has launched, not human beings at this point. And so when I then come forward into the 20th and 21st centuries with that, I find myself saying, uh, when I was young, we watched traditional morality go out of the window. It was sex in the 60s. It was uh, money in the 80s. You know, we don't need to obey the old rules. We, we are going to do it differently. We are the modern world now. And then what's happened is the invention of, uh, and I think Douglas and I agree on this, the invention of neo-moralisms, which is what the woke ideology is really all about. And, and it reminds me sometimes of, I think it was Caligula, the Roman emperor, it might have been Nero, I'm getting this wrong, it's late at night, um, who put new laws um, up so high that nobody could read them and then um, blamed or punished people for not obeying these new laws that mm. he just invented. Mm. And that's, that's very much what's going on at the moment. It's well, as yes. though society can't live without morality, but if you've banished all the older moralities, you've got to invent mm. some more from the ground up. And we're it's, doing it's, it on a very... Um, very base, uh, uh, very flimsy basis. It seems. To me. It also goes back to what you what you mentioned the, the, the Cameron comment, which is, um, what exactly is the project? Because there's an added cruelty, isn't there, to, this, to, to, to as it were, writing the laws in a place where they cannot be read. There's an added cruelty if you haven't even finished writing them yet, and you tell Quite. people to get with them. Quite. Um, Quite. So the, the, one of the questions underneath the R era is is what exactly are the laws? What are the rules here? Uh, the Christian yeah. ethic has a, a, a set of rules. It's, it's, they can be debated around endlessly, as everyone present yes. knows. But, but, but there are foundations to them you cannot deny. They're not wholly abstract. No, the era we're in, they are to do with the goodness of... Sorry. When we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, but the, 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 the Christian... Morality, it seems to me, is to do with the goodness of creation, but the need for recreation, for redemption and recreation, but a recreation which doesn't say forget the old ways, we'll do it totally differently. I mean, which is what we've got in a lot of society at the moment. Oh, just don't worry about what everyone used to think, we're going to do it totally differently. Mm. We're going to change the meaning of words um, uh, as, as, well as, as well as the meaning of behavior, but rather to mm. say no... Um, try seeing the world from the perspective of a good and wise creator who is revealed in a thousand ways, whether it's music or beauty or whatever it is, as well as, as the structures of reality. But this world is out of joint and the great Jewish vision, and again, I, I knew and am grieving about Jonathan Sachs, bless him, he saw this so clearly, the great Jewish vision of God's passion for the world to restore the world and the vocation of the people of God to be somehow modeling that and showing it forth and saying, this is a self-evidently good way to be human. And so it isn't just mm. thinking through ethical theory. It's about how the community actually lives. And for me, again, this is all about following and worshiping Jesus. And that, I know that's, that was folly to the Greeks and scandalous to the Jews in the first century, and it still is today. But 
if you put that as the coping stone in the middle, everything else will actually fall so into place. What, coming back to you then, Douglas, um, g- given that you, to some extent, you're both in agreement on the fact that to lose Christ, the Christian story uh, and the, the moral underpinnings that's given culture leaves everyone scrabbling to kind of essentially invent their own morality and everyone gets very confused and angry with each other in the process. Um I mean, where do we go from here, I suppose, is the question. And um, is, is, is there a way back even to, to you know, what now it's, it's just, the genie sort of out of the bottle, though, isn't mm. it? I mean, can we go yes. back to that once Christian age where apparently yes. everyone more or less agreed on things? Yes, I say that in the strange death of Europe. You, 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 can't, you can't wish things you know and wish them unknown um, or wish them unlearned. And this is something I think is uh, is very important in all dialogue between believers and non-believers. Um, I just wanted to say, I, I, I wouldn't like it to be um, uh, anyone to take away from this that, that I, I simply think that the church has a PR problem. Um, it isn't just that I think that the presentation is, is wrong or there's a mistake in, for instance, falling into the religion of anti-racism or anything else. It's that... I do believe that doing that means that the church fails to tell its own story. Um, we had an article in the Spectator, I think, last week from uh, my friend, uh, former Bishop Michael Nazir Ali. Uh, he made a very powerful point about the figures in the church, for instance, uh, who were profoundly anti-slavery, uh, um, and not just uh, you know um, Wilberforce, uh, but Charlemagne. And others, who, who um, you know, saints in the seventh century, Christian saints in the seventh century, um, who were martyred and um, objected to the slavery in their own time. There is what I'm trying to say is that it's not just that there is a PR misunderstanding. It seems to me within the church, and it's missing a trick. It is that this is not a fair summary of the Christian story. It isn't a fair summary of the story of the church. And what it is, is, is the adoption of a facile and prof- profoundly hostile analysis of the church, which sees the church, for instance, as being a, um, I don't know, a, a white enterprise. But it clearly isn't. Like uh, Tom Wright has seen congregations across the world. I've been at services throughout the Middle East, across Africa. The beleaguered communities sometimes show absolutely extraordinary and inspiring levels of faith. And I don't recognize the negative interpretation of the church, which I see from some people trying to force a different ethic on the church today. But as I say, it's not just in the history of the church, but in the story that the church has to tell about itself today, that I think that there is an error being made. Because, for instance, to go back to something which, uh, as uh, Tom Wright knows, I wrote, wrote about in, in The Madness of Crowds, if you look at the great um, error of the ideology which is trying to embed today, it is, it is that it has spent no time bothering itself over the question of forgiveness. Now, it's not just that I think that the church is missing a PR trick in not addressing this. I think that the church does everybody in society the most enormous disservice if it doesn't say, this is what our faith is built upon. We have been thinking about this and trying to practice it at least for millennia. So at least give us your ear for a moment. Yeah. And that, that's, that's really important. I was talking to a good friend just this morning on email who has been writing a short article about wokeness and he wanted me to comment and I said the one thing you need to point out is that all the woke morality is simply about you guys are wrong and you guys are wrong and you're full of hate and you're this and you're that. And there is no sense that if you repent, we'll forgive you. Um, no. You just have to grovel. And, 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 and it's, it's a, a, a morality of, um, I, I hate to use the word Phariseeism because actually that's a slur on the first century Pharisees, but that's what in the popular discourse it's about. It's about we've got this right and we're making up new laws as we go along, as Douglas has said. And you lot are wrong, and you're staying wrong, and we're glad you're wrong, and we're going to rub your noses in the dirt. Mm. And it seems to me that's 
rather like certain revolutions. I mean, revolutions that eat their own children, where some, I mean, the French Revolution notoriously ended up decapitating quite a lot of people who had been among the leaders of the early movement. And it's more complicated than that. It, it but, strikes but me that in, in everything you've said there, that, that in a sense, though, just even if we are in a quote unquote post-Christian world, we, we're not in a less religious world in the sense that these ideologies become right. quite religious, but mm. but not in a very grace-filled kind of religion. And, and you've spoken about that yourself, Douglas, that there's that kind of mm. aspect to the way people then grasp certain identities and certain causes and ideologies. And that becomes their sort of their their identity, their religion. And hmm. and I suppose this is the problem, isn't it? We 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 are meaning seeking, story driven creatures. And if it's not going to be the story of Christianity, it's hmm. going to be another story. Um, yes. And the question is, can we live together with these very different stories, which often bump hmm. up against each other? Hmm. Yes, but, I, but I think I, that's. Sorry, sorry go Douglas, go ahead, and, and then oh, Tom no. respond. Oh, okay. Um, I think this is this is true. I, I've I've often um, thought. I hesitate to say this in front of such a distinguished theologian, but I've often thought that one of the interesting um, points about uh, what Jesus teaches is that uh, much of it, as, as I said, as Tom Wright well knows, much of it you can find in uh, some of the contemporary Greek thought. Um, some of the thought is 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 around the Roman world, um, but nothing nothing uh, prepares for the demand to love your enemy. Um, it seems to me so completely revolutionary and so completely counterintuitive that it has, um, a, a, that, that, and I think we recognize, if I may say so, I think we recognize in our era as well, with all when we see this being practiced. That's why I come back to this, that, that it, it's, it's not just about missing, missing a trick, it's, it's missing, um, an opportunity to display your faith. Uh, when when people see actual forgiveness, it is, I think, among the most humbling, uh, most moving things that you can ever witness as a human being. There was an example a couple of years ago when at a church in the South America, that was very unusual, but uh, appalling crime when a, a young white uh, um, crazed as a white supremacist of some kind walked into a church and, and shot uh, the uh, some of the worshippers. And the next day there was an interview with you know, it was a black congregation. And uh, the next day there was an interview with one of the families. And the mother of somebody who just lost her son said that she forgave the killer of her son. I, I thought this a couple of years ago, I was doing a tour with um, a somebody who became a friend, Cornell West, Professor Cornell West of Harvard, who by his own definition is a revolutionary uh, Christian socialist. Um, so we have a lot to disagree about. I was very struck, uh, Cornell always refers to people as brother, brother this, brother that. Some people think it's an annoying tick of his. I rather like it. Um, but I was actually bowled over one day when he referred to this shooting. And he said, that brother who went into that church and shot up that congregation. And I was so, so moved and so amazed that, that he would refer even to this person who had done this unforgivable thing by any analysis, an unforgivable thing, would still refer to this man as his brother. It seemed to, and, and it seems to me this is an example of living and displaying a Christian ethic which, if it was just seen a bit more, would have a profound impression in the world. I, I, I totally agree with Douglas there. And again, I want to stress that the problem with that is that you can't just do it by you and me saying, and no. anyone else who's listening, by the way, you should be going out and getting on with it, though we all should, and it is difficult, but, but yes. But it can only ultimately become uh, instantiated in a community and in the settled habits of somebody's life when you have at the heart of the faith the story of Jesus going to the cross to defeat the powers of evil. Because without that, then forgiveness is, is a, a lovely idea for other people to practice, but too hard for me, as it were. But if Jesus has actually dealt with evil in his death, whatever that means, and you have to have lots of discussions about how that plays out, of course, then who am I to go on actually holding it against this person or that person? And that's why forgiveness 
then has as its positive side reconciliation. Forgiveness shouldn't just leave you with, uh, as it were, a zero bank balance. It ought then to open the way for reconciliation. Mm -hmm. That's, of course, what Archbishop Desmond Tutu uh, has done so spectacularly. And I know South Africa is still a very difficult and dangerous place. But when I was young, we were all talking about the coming bloodbath in South Africa. And the fact that there wasn't a bloodbath and that there was a peaceful transition of power was largely due to the fact that Tutu and a lot of others were going and praying with leading politicians, reading the Bible with them. And then when the transition happened, having that amazing commission of truth and reconciliation with white thugs and black thugs confessing their sins, seeking reconciliation, that should still be sending a shockwave around the world, both in Northern Ireland and in the Middle East, heaven help us what's going on at the moment, um, and so on and so on. This is the only way to live, ultimately. But you can only even glimpse a, a chance of doing it if you've got Jesus himself in the middle. I'm sorry to sound like a cracked record, but perhaps you would expect a theologian no, no. always to come it's back important. and talk about Jesus. It's, if I say so, it, it comes back to this point. It, it, it's the most important thing to do as a theologian. Yeah. And, and as a Christian, and, and it is, as I say, it is an enormous relief to hear it. I, I mean, well, you say it's an enormous relief there, Douglas. In a sense, for you, obviously, you, you came to the point where you couldn't believe that this story was literally true, but you miss it. You've even described yourself as a Christian mm. atheist. Mm. I mean, the culture at large, there's probably a lot of other Douglas Murrays out there, and people perhaps for whom Christianity has never figured in their life. But if, if Christianity is the story that, that did work and, and the stories that we're now telling aren't working and putting us out mm. of joint, can you see any way in which the Christian story, even as a non-Christian, could could start to make inroads again? Is it is it simply about the church standing oh, yes. up again and being a bit more confident? Um, I, I'm not sure I say it only as confidence. Um, I, I've said uh, many years that I, I see um, an enormous opportunity for people of faith to be speaking into a perhaps a more receptive uh, um, crowd than before. Um, I do see that. I, I do think, to perhaps the rather hackneyed reference to, um, to Matthew Arnold, but um, I, I do always think that the interesting thing about the sea of faith is there's no reason why it can't come back in. Yes. You know, the sea doesn't only you. withdraw. You know, it, it, <laughs> it's it's the point of tides. And and uh, but but for that to happen, what would be on offer would have to be radically different from everything else in the society that's on offer. That's one of the reasons why I've been very interested. I can't remember if we talked about this with Justin Ford. I've been very interested in recent years watching um, contemporaries of mine who have uh, seen through, looked at, stared at the same, some of the same problems that, that I have and have come to conclusions of their own in a religious sense. I've been very struck, for instance, by not a large number of people, a relatively small number of people, but people I think of as being very intelligent thinking people who have, for instance, converted to Catholicism. And I see, uh, I can think of one person who is an Anglican, one person who was born and brought up a Muslim, and somebody else I know who was an atheist throughout. And I, I, I don't think this is typical by any means. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying that among people I know who are very thoughtful, who thought about these things and have come from a wide range of different directions. They have they have gone towards that. And what has struck me most is that they have gone to the most traditional form of that faith. And I'm talking about people who've gone into Tridentine mm. uh, mass mm. attending Catholicism. They don't go to uh, the, the weaker forms of it because they want to drink as directly from the well as they can. Yes. Mm. And I, and that seems that seems to me to be as I say why why I, it, it saddens me to, to put it no stronger that um, that that a religion with its inheritance with all of this to offer would offer the most watered down version of itself to the extent that it is a version that is indistinguishable from everything else on offer in society. Yes, I, I very much understand that. Um, I think at the same time. Um, there is a sense which is deeply rooted in Jesus himself um, going and eating with sinners, doing things that nobody was expecting a Messiah, a, a prophet to do, uh, breaking the social taboos in order to be on all fours with the people who really needed him. Uh, there was the shock that went through the system with that, but that's happened again and again throughout 
Christian history, that Christianity has, is a missionary religion and missionaries find that they, they do their work better when they're actually on all fours with the people that they're trying to get mm. to know and not, as it were, saying, here is this amazing unattainable ideal and I'm up there somewhere and maybe you could find your way up if you're lucky because that's how it sometimes comes across to people. And so there's mm. this tension the whole time between um, that wonderful, rich thing, as you say, dr- drinking from the well itself, which, of course, for me is what I think both reading the Bible, saying my prayers, going to ordinary worship services, that's what it's all about. Um, the, the, it's absolutely central. But uh, th- there is a to and a fro. And again, it's because of a belief in the goodness of God's creation that mm. uh, that actually these people out there are created by God. God loves them. And I am called to love them as well and to get alongside them and not as it would appear to some, hold myself away from them by going to something so recondite that the average mortal would never even have the slightest idea what it was all about. There is, I think that tension is always going to be there. Well, if I may say so, just very quickly on this, and I completely agree, but a very interesting thing that's happening at the moment is that the the, the abstract um, 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 not getting involved in... Uh, the nitty-gritty of your era is actually what is happening mistakenly. We ran a piece uh, just this week. I don't want to keep plugging the spectator, but we ran <laughs> a piece just in the new edition out this week by a very um, intelligent young clergyman um, uh, talking about the, just just saying, look, the, the latest, um, again, I also don't want to spend a whole time bashing the Church of England, but um, he said the, the latest thing this week is, is an edict on church memorials and uh, there is going to be an expectation of um, that that memorials in churches across England that are connected with, for instance, I saw this one, slavery, um, will have to be reconsidered. And this clergyman just says, I, I, was, I was so moved by it. He said, he said, I have four churches that I, 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 I oversee. If I am to spend my time going through this, he said, first of all, no one has ever complained about a memorial, ever, Jimmy. He said, if I am to spend my time doing this, I will not be able to spend my time ministering to the people in my parishes. So it, it, it is as straightforward as that. And as I say, what strikes me is that there is a drive for what is mistakenly thought to be a drive that will satisfy and impress people in the era, when in fact it will take the church precisely away from its activities. Yeah, a, It seems to me an example of a massive misunderstanding of where the church's priorities ought to be in order to impress the rest yeah. of the country. I, I, fascinating conversation. I, I, time is slipping by so fast, though, and I did promise those who are watching on YouTube and Facebook uh, some opportunity to ask questions. We had a lot of them coming in. Uh, keep them coming, by the way. If you'd like to ask a question, uh, you can do so uh, in the chat on uh, wherever you're watching on Facebook or on YouTube. Well, I'm going to call time on today's podcast just there. Come back next week and we'll play out the Q&A that came in. And there's just a lot more fantastic interaction on the back of some great questions from the audience between Tom Wright and Douglas Murray. But uh, you've been listening to the big conversation that took place between N.T. Wright and Douglas Murray, a special live stream edition of the show. Again, would love to know what you think of this. Uh, do take our quick multi-choice survey linked with today's show. And do sign up at thebigconversation.show for more conversations like these. For now, thanks for being with us this week. You can find out more about the podcast, further videos, how to ask a question yourself and other resources by registering at asknt.right.com. Thanks for being with us. See you next time.